Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Please stand and we'll begin in prayer. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Exodus chapter 34, verse 27. Verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words in accordance with these words. I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant of the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you want your face to shine like God, I recommend that you take the fast seriously this year. I know I joked around a little bit last time, the time before, yeah, last time about the fast in 1888. I mentioned that, didn't I? Where they fasted and abstained all of Lent. And you say, but the church doesn't require it of me. Christ has come to tear up our obligations and to give us a new heart that we might desire to follow him more faithfully. So do I encourage you? Yes, I encourage you to take the fast seriously. What you do on Friday, what about also doing on Wednesday, traditionally the day that Judas turned in our Lord? Huh? You remember Some of you remember the old days of the Wednesday and Friday fast. Or what about doing it every single day during Lent? Maybe a little bit of relief on Sunday, maybe on Saturday also. All right, why don't we begin? Please uh, welcome Professor Brendan McGuire. Thank you, Deacon Sabatino. Of course, the, the reference to uh, relief from fasting on Saturdays, that's a traditional Byzantine practice. Fasting on Saturdays being regarded as one of the, the errors of the Latins. It's one of the errors of the Franks. So, uh, so if you want to be like a traditional Latin and commit error, then fast on Saturday. Um, but uh, anyway, of course, I think the relatively uh, small or moderate attendance tonight compared to last week, it's it may be due to Lenten programs in the parishes. It may also be due to the fact that so many people were here on dates on Valentine's Day a week ago. So, which is, it, it was a packed house. There was love in the air. It was fantastic. Uh, so, alrighty. So, uh, for those of you who missed last week's lecture, we provided a lot of background, a lot of context for understanding the life, ministry, and contributions to Western civilization of the great saints Cyril and Methodius. We talked about the recovery of the Byzantine Empire from the 7th century crisis. We talked about the, the Byzantine Empire's reconquest of Thrace and Greece and how important that was for the civilization and culture of that area. We talked about the rise of Charlemagne's empire and its dismemberment after Charlemagne's death and the death of his son, Louis the Pious. 
Uh, Louis the Pious, of course, dies in 840, uh, and Louis the Pious's sons dismembered the Carolingian Empire over the years between 840 and 843. Uh, so we talked about the, the significance of political events then in the ninth century and the way in which, in some sense, the ministry of Cyril and Methodius cannot really be understood without some appreciation for the complexity of ninth century politics. Ninth century politics, especially in Eastern Europe, it's an enormously complex subject because you have the resurgent Byzantine Empire involved in projecting power and influence amongst the Slavs and the Bulgars. You have the power of the East Frankish Empire and its influence amongst the Slavs. Remember, even going back to Charlemagne's time, there were efforts to extend Frankish suzerainty over the Avar Khanate and over the Slavs of, of Pannonia. So it, it is an interesting point to note that the, the ministry of Cyril and Methodius is one in which they're often dodging and dancing around the political realities of their time, always loyal to the papacy, always supported by the papacy, and always loyal to their mission, which was to bring the gospel to the Slavic peoples. We talked in some detail last time also about the circumstances of the Byzantine court in the reign of Michael III, the famous Michael the Drunkard. Uh, remember, we, we talked about the fact that Michael III only cared about a few things. He cared about drinking. He cared about chariot racing, he cared about drinking, uh, he cared about his mistress, and he cared about drinking. So five things. Oh, yeah. So Michael III, very, very interesting character. And, of course, the, the court of Michael III is, is really interesting because it, it's a result of the, the rollicking, riotous, scandalous nature of Michael III's court that, of course, we witnessed the rise of one of the towering figures of ninth-century history, which was the patriarch Photius. Remember, the Byzantine patriarch Photius rose to his position as patriarch of Constantinople uh, because of the way in which he took a benign view of Michael III's court in comparison to the view taken by Photius's austere predecessor, Ignatius, uh, and I, I should say not just predecessor, but also lifelong rival insofar as Ignatius's deposition in 858 didn't do away with Ignatius and it didn't do away with the controversy over Photius's appointment. Uh, so all of that having been noted, uh, we, we observed last time how the beginning of Cyril and Methodius's ministry among the Slavs of Great Moravia in 862, it occurs at a time when the papacy and the Patriarchate of Constantinople are to a certain extent uh, at odds with one another. They're at each other's throats, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, Photius's rivalry with the Pope in the early 860s, which is Pope Nicholas I, uh, almost cannot be exaggerated. And so it was a golden opportunity for the Patriarch Photius in the context of his rivalry with the papacy when Rostislav, the king of Great Moravia, sent a message to Photius asking for missionaries. So why is Rostislav asking Photius for Byzantine missionaries? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, the, the misconception is that the Moravians were not yet Christian, that the Moravians were ignorant of the gospel, they were pagans, they were worshipping trees or animals or something like that, and they asked for Byzantine missionaries. That's not actually the case. Rostislav and the Moravians had been evangelized at this point for a couple of generations, but the thing is they had been evangelized by Franks. Rostislav himself was a client king, a sort of a puppet king, an ally of the Carolingian Louis the German. Okay. So you have to understand Rostislav's request for Byzantine missionaries in context. Rostislav wanted to disentangle himself from the Carolingian dynasty, from the Carolingian kingdom. He wanted to make himself no longer so obviously dependent on the Carolingians. You also have to remember the Carolingian political program was deeply entwined with religion. There's no way to separate religion from politics in the medieval Christian world, just as there's no way to separate religion from politics really at all in pre-modern times. The separation between religion and politics is a very recent thing. It's kind of a bizarre thing. Uh, in the ninth century, religion and politics are deeply intertwined, deeply implicated with one another. 
And so Carolingian hegemony in the Slavic world, Carolingian suzerainty, Carolingian political influence in the world of Great Moravia, in the world of Pannonia, even Serbia and Bulgaria, uh, it's something that has religious implications. Why? Because remember, the religious agenda of the Carolingians, it was an agenda of uniformity. Uniformity with Roman practice, uniformity with Latin practice, uniformity with both liturgical and monastic and canonical practice derived from the life of the church in Italy. Okay. So insofar as the Carolingians are influential in Rostislav's Moravian kingdom, what are they actually doing? They're, what they're doing is they're advancing a, a meticulous and detailed program of liturgical reform and the reform of the life of the church to bring the Moravian church into line with, with strict Roman practice as interpreted by the figures of the Carolingian reform, right? as interpreted by Benedict of Anion and Amalarius of Metz and all these other great Carolingian figures. Uh, so for Rostislav, he begins to feel by the 860s that his ties with the Carolingian realm are a little bit too close. All right. he, he's not independent enough for his own tastes. So his invitation to the patriarch Photius to send Byzantine missionaries, it's one that has both religious and political implications. In other words, he wants to free himself from the Carolingian church and from the Carolingian empire. He wants to free himself from Carolingian politics and Carolingian ecclesiastical hegemony. Right. And so, of course, whom does Photius send in 862 to Great Moravia? He sends his big guns. He sends Cyril and Methodius. Now, we talked a little bit last time about Cyril and Methodius and their background and why their background was so unusual and, and so special. Of course, so we mentioned last time that they were born in Thessalonica. And at the time of their birth, and obviously Methodius is the older brother. He's born sometime in the 810s in that decade. Um, Cyril, who was born Constantine. In fact, he was not named Cyril until very close to his death, or maybe even after his death, depending on what source you read. Uh, Cyril, born Constantine, uh, was the youngest of, of the seven brothers of their family, born in the 820s in Thessalonica. Now, we talked last time about how Thessalonica was right on the frontier of the Byzantine Empire and the, the region that had been settled by Slavs during the 7th century crisis. In fact, Cyril and Methodius' mother may actually have been a Slav. Cyril and Methodius themselves uh, were almost certainly bilingual, from their earliest years, speaking both Greek and Slavonic. Uh, so they, obviously later on in the 860s, they have a sort of a, a unique set of virtues when Photius is examining them for this mission. Uh, on the other hand, though, you have to realize Cyril and Methodius were chosen for this mission not just because they were bicultural, not just because they understood the Slavonic language, but because they were geniuses. Okay, for, for example, let, let's talk about the life of, of the youngest brother, Constantine, later known as Cyril. Young Cyril, as we'll call him, just for simplicity's sake, was a man who was trained by Photius himself and by the professors of the great university of the Magnaura in languages, literature, philosophy, and theology as a young man. When he was in his 30s, he was sent on a diplomatic mission to Baghdad, to the Abbasid Caliphate, to discuss with the Caliph al-Mutawakil the nature of the Trinity. Now here's the thing, al-Mutawakil, he was an interesting Abbasid Caliph. The Abbasid Caliphs in general uh, were interested in theology. They were interested in the Christian notion of the Trinity. Because of course the Abbasid Caliphs were frequently embroiled in theological controversies with their own wise men, with their own religious scholars, over the issue of, of whether God can be described as having attributes. Uh, this is an issue in Islamic theology that's very controversial because anything that impinges on the perceived unity of God is controversial in Islam. So al-Mutawakil, he had actually been in correspondence with Byzantine clerics, Byzantine learned men, 
asking them in the middle of the ninth century, sometime in the 850s, uh, if they could send theologians who spoke Arabic to Baghdad to discuss the Trinity with him. Guess who is living in Constantinople in the 850s who speaks Arabic? Well, at least two guys. Photius is one of them. He doesn't go. Our man Cyril, he's the one sent to Baghdad because his Arabic was so good that he could go bandy words with the caliph, with Christian theologians in Baghdad, who, who were the caliph's dependents, and of course with Islamic theologians as well. So it's a very, very interesting diplomatic mission uh, that Cyril is on in the 850s. It reveals him as a linguistic genius, as a philosophical and theological genius. The guy's a big gun. Okay? He's, he's one of the most learned men in the Mediterranean world when he's only in his 30s. Okay, Photius, his mentor, is undoubtedly the most learned man in the Christian world in this period. In the year 860, we know that Cyril had been sent on a diplomatic mission to the Khazars. Now, the Khazars were a people who lived north of the Black Sea, and uh, the Byzantines had been in contact with the Khazars during the course of the Byzantine recovery, as in the 9th century, they had tried to, the Byzantines had tried to reassert control over the Crimea. Okay, so attempting to reassert control over the Crimea, to reassert control over the great granaries of the modern-day Ukraine. This brought the, the Byzantine Empire directly into contact with the Khazars. Uh, in fact, th there were Khazar princesses who married Byzantine emperors in the 8th century, and so there were deep ties there. But why is Cyril sent to the Khazars in 860? Because the Khazars were considering a mass conversion to Judaism of all things. Uh, there were Khazar Khans who wanted to force the conversion of all of their subjects to Judaism. Cyril was sent to dissuade them in 860. And it was in this context that St. Cyril penned uh, some ferocious anti-Jewish polemics that are shocking to modern ears. I mean, we could cut him maybe a little slack because he's writing in a very different context. Same thing with John Chrysostom and uh, other Byzantine writers. Oftentimes they're, they're, their anti-Jewish polemics can be a little bit surprising and offensive uh, to us. But it's, it's in this context then that's, that Cyril was sent, sent on a mission to the Khazars. And he, uh, he supposedly learned to speak the Khazar language, and he debated at the court of the Khazar Khan. By this point, Cyril is known to have mastered not only the Khazar language and Arabic, but also Hebrew and Syriac alongside his native Greek and Slavonic. So Cyril was, uh, by this point, established as a, a man of theological and philosophical acumen, linguistic gifts, and, and some amount of diplomatic skill. Although his mission to the Khazars, it must be said, was a failure. In the 860s, there's no doubt that the Khazar Khans um, decided to convert their entire people to Judaism. But by 862, we know that Cyril was back in Constantinople. He was teaching philosophy at the University of the Magnaura. That's, it's a university that has a kind of an interesting history. It actually goes back to late antiquity, to the reign of Theodosius II. It's unlike universities in the medieval West, in that it was not a guild of scholars or a guild of philosophers. The Byzantine University of the Magnaura was, it was rather a, um, a, a collection of scholars, teachers, rhetors, linguists, etc., who were on imperial salary. They were basically um, subjects of imperial patronage. And Cyril uh, was, um, as a protege of Photius, of course, he had his ticket to be uh, a professor of philosophy there at the Magnaura. So it was then, in 862, that Cyril and his older brother Methodius were plucked up by, by the patriarch Photius and sent to Great Moravia to bring Byzantine Christianity to the Moravian Slavs. Their approach to it was ingenious, original, and typical of what you might expect of the great geniuses that they were. Now, as far as Methodius' background is concerned, his background is a little bit more obscure. Um, his linguistic and political skills 
were apparently not quite as great as his brothers. Uh, in fact, th there are ways in which Methodius's early career was aggrandized in the writings of later med medieval authors because they wanted to make him equal to his brother. Apparently, Methodius had a vocation from an early age. He had become an abbot in Constantinople by the 860s. Uh, and uh, although being bilingual, certainly being a native Slavonic speaker like his brother, he doesn't quite have his brother's spectacular record for scholarship. But the two of them are sent together in 862, then, to bring a, a Byzantine approach to the Christian life, to the liturgy, to monasticism, etc., uh, and spread it amongst the Slavs with the royal patronage of Rostislav of Moravia. Now, the, their approach to it, as we said, it was ingenious, and it involved, from the outset, something that uh, you might not think of initially as, as being the, uh, the kind of foundation of evangelizing a country, but it seems to have been one of the first things that they did, and that is they invented a new alphabet because they, they realized the key to evangelizing the Slavs, right? the way in which we're going to completely drive these, our Frankish missionary competitors from the field here is to show that, that our learning is far superior to theirs and our ability to engage the Slavs where they're at is far better than that of our Frankish competitors. So they invented an alphabet uh, that historians call the Glagolitic alphabet. Right? It's, uh, it was a way of phonetically representing the Slavonic language with symbols that were derived from Latin and Greek letters. Uh, this Glagolitic alphabet allowed them to then translate religious texts, to translate the Bible, to translate the liturgy, and for that matter, to translate the civil law code of the Moravian Slavs into written language. Slavonic was a language that had never been written before. And suddenly, now you had a Slavonic law code written with a Slavonic alphabet. You had the Byzantine liturgy in Slavonic. You had the Bible translated in Slavonic and written down. Of course, this was something that the, the Frankish missionaries could not compete with. The Frankish missionaries, who were in many ways half-literate, limited to their, their Latin, limited in their command of the Slavic tongue, could not remotely compete with the, the erudition and the genius of Cyril and Methodius. In 865, something happened which would have a profound impact on the legacy of Cyril and Methodius, although they themselves didn't realize it at the time. So by 865, Cyril and Methodius are up in the Great Moravia, which would be modern-day Slovakia, let's say, part of the Czech Republic, part of Slovakia. That general region would have been Great Moravia, although the, the borders tended to move depending on how the Byzantines, the Bulgars, and the Franks were doing politically. But roughly that region is where we can locate Great Moravia. They're having great success up there in the mid-860s uh, when the Khan of the Bulgars, quite surprisingly, decided to convert to Christianity. Now, it's interesting. The, the Khan of the Bulgars, his name was Boris, although he took the name Michael upon his baptism in 865. And uh, his conversion appears to have been motivated by the fact uh, that he was defeated by a Byzantine army. He was impressed by the Byzantine army that defeated him. He was impressed with Byzantine religion. And he decided, if you can't beat him, join him. So he, became, he decided to become a Byzantine Christian. And he invited Michael III to send Byzantine missionaries to Bulgaria. That was, that was very, very important. It was important because, although at the beginning, the Byzantine missionaries who came to Bulgaria were bringing an unadulterated Greek Christianity with them, nevertheless, in later generations, um, missionaries who were students of Cyril and Methodius would take over the mission field in Bulgaria and bring the Slavonic liturgy, the Slavonic Bible, the Slavonic religious texts with them. 
And so the, the Bulgars, the, the history of, of Bulgaria, would end up being uh, profoundly influenced by the success of Cyril and Methodius' project of producing Slavonic religious texts, producing a Slavonic Christian tradition, uh, although that wasn't quite the case yet in 865. Uh, Bulgarian Christianity would go through a whole range of vicissitudes before finally embracing the Slavonic synthesis of Cyril and Methodius. It's interesting, the, the conversion of these peoples, the conversion of Moravian Slavs, Bulgars, and of course the Slavs who are caught in between the Bulgars and Moravians, which was the Pannonians, the conversion of all of these peoples to Byzantine Christianity is something that we can remark upon as actually the beginnings of the creation of what Dmitry Obolinsky calls the Byzantine Commonwealth. Right? With the conversion of these various, pe various peoples to Byzantine Christianity, the influence of the Byzantine Empire in political, cultural, and religious terms would expand far beyond the empire's boundaries. Right? Now, when, when Obolensky uses that phrase, the Byzantine Commonwealth, to describe the relationship between the Byzantine Empire and the, the Slavs of Pannonia, Moravia, Bulgaria, etc. Later on, of course, the Kievan Rus would be thrown into the mix in the 11th century. When he uses that term, the Byzantine Commonwealth, we have to remember, Oblensky is writing in the 60s. So Oblensky was writing at a time when the term Commonwealth carried a lot more weight to it than it does today. Of course, he's thinking of the British Commonwealth, right? And, and the British Commonwealth for the first 20, 30 years after the Second World War, it was an idea that, that really had some weight and power to it in a way that it maybe doesn't today. Uh, the idea of, you know, political independence, political particularism, but a, a sort of a, a governing ethic that's dictated from what's perceived as a cultural and political guiding center, right? That's, that's how you could, in some sense, characterize Obolensky's notion of the Byzantine Commonwealth. And we see that forming in the ninth century, with, with Byzantine influence spread all across Eastern Europe. Of course, this is going to bring Byzantine missionaries, Byzantine bishops, Byzantine monks, Byzantine emissaries, directly into conflict with others, including most especially Frankish missionaries who had interest in working in Pannonia, Moravia, and for that matter, Bulgaria. Now, to some extent, the, the history of Christian missions, as we said, in these areas, it's going to be subject to political vicissitudes. So one thing that you have to keep in mind when you're looking at the lives of Cyril and Methodius and other missionaries in these regions is that uh, a king like Boris, the Khan of the Bulgars, could have a variety of motives for expelling Byzantine missionaries and accepting Frankish ones, or vice versa. Right? To a certain extent, uh, we see the kings of the Slavs and the Bulgars in this period engaged in... Um, a little bit of political opportunism where they wanted to play the, the powerful influences of Eastern and Western Christianity off of one another, always in their own interests. Right? So it can be a little bit confusing sometimes. It, it's not just Byzantine and Frankish missionaries competing with one another over a mission field. To some extent, the, the decisions of, of the Khans and kings of these people can be dictated by other things. They can be dictated by political concerns. And so, for example, we know that the Khan Boris uh, went back and forth between Byzantine and Latin Christianity throughout his career. And to some extent, his decisions were affected by the political vicissitudes of Byzantium, of the Frankish Empire, etc. Uh, but keep in mind that what makes Cyril and Methodius so distinctive in this era is that they maintained a fidelity to their mission and fidelity to their principles throughout all the political vicissitudes that they faced. Cyril and Methodius, they, they maintained, now when I talk about their mission, we're talking about the spread of Slavonic Christianity among the Slavic peoples. When I talk about their principles, I mean fidelity to Byzantine liturgical and spiritual traditions on the one hand and to the papacy on the other hand. And somehow Cyril and Methodius were able to maintain all of that 
despite, despite the political maelstrom in which they were often uh, involved. Now, it's interesting. In 867, quite suddenly, Cyril and Methodius were summoned. They were summoned from their mission field in Moravia, where they had been doing fantastic work, and they were summoned to Rome by Pope Nicholas I. And the question is why? Why 867? Why are they suddenly summoned to Rome at this point after they've been in Moravia for all these years? Well, the answer is that events in the Byzantine Empire had intervened. Events in the Byzantine Empire had made Pope Nicholas I think that maybe this was the time to summon these guys to Rome and make sure we're all on the same page. So what had been going on in the Byzantine Empire? Well, look at it this way. Uh, in 866, right, the year before Cyril and Methodius' summons to Rome, uh, the Emperor Michael III, Michael the Drunkard, had discovered that his mistress, Eudokia Ingerina, was pregnant. Now, this was an interesting discovery for Michael III, because if you remember Michael III from last time, he had a wife on the one hand, but, but he didn't go anywhere near his wife. Uh, then he had his mistress, who he hung out with. So his mistress becomes pregnant. Now, the problem is, he, uh, he knows that this is his child. Like any good father would, he wants his child to be his heir. The problem is, if his child is born out of wedlock, then the child can't be his heir. So he has to make sure that the child is born to a wedded couple. So he has to make sure his mistress gets married to someone. He's not an option, because he's already married. Uh, the sudden death of his wife is not an option, because it would look a little too suspicious. I think even for Photius, that would be a bit much. Uh, and so what, you know, what, what is he going to do? Well, remember, Michael III had a lot of drinking buddies. His drinking buddies, they tended to be rough around the edges, half-literate athletes. Uh, and one of them was a guy named Basil the Macedonian. Basil the Macedonian was one, one of his uh, most fun drinking companions. And so Michael III goes to Basil the Macedonian one day and he says, Hey, look, dude, uh, I got a problem. Problem is, my girlfriend's pregnant. Basil says, Hey, congratulations, that's great news. Why is that a problem? Well, you see, she needs to be married in order to give birth to this child. Basil says, oh, I have a solution for that. Uh, Michael says, no, 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 nothing messy, right? We can't kill my wife. That would just, yeah, that, that would just be a little bit too obvious. How about, Basil, since you're a single dude, how about you marry my mistress? And Basil says, what? <laughs> Michael III says, all right, yeah, how about you marry my mistress? And Basil Macedonia says, okay, let me get this straight. You want me to marry your mistress. Like, really marry her? Michael says, no, that's not what I mean, you idiot. Just, just like, marry her kind of in name only. Right. And then when the baby is born, it'll be legally legitimate. Basil says, okay, let me, you don't want me to really marry her. No, I just want you to, like, be her legal husband. And then, then the baby will have a legal father. And then I can appoint the baby Caesar of the Byzantine Empire, and it can be my heir. Got that? Basil says, okay, cool. Well, if I'm married to your mistress then I'm kind of stuck, right? And, and Michael III says, ah, don't worry, Basil, I'll, I'll assign you your own mistress. Basil says, really? oh, who? Michael III says, well, I, I have a sister. You can have her as your mistress. Uh, and you can have my mistress as your wife. Right? <laughs> Basil says, all right, that's, that's fair. All right, fine. <laughs> you know, so, so Basil the Macedonian officially marries Michael III's mistress. Uh, while taking Michael III's sister as his mistress. Uh, and now, guess who's kind of out in the cold here? The guy who's, who's really out in the cold, the guy, the guy who really loses here, is the guy who was the official Caesar of the Byzantine Empire, which was Michael III's uncle, Bardas. You guys remember Bardas from last time, right? 
He's the guy who seduced his daughter-in-law, was refused communion. All right, but Bardas is the guy who's basically responsible, in some sense, for the rise of Photius. Michael III realizes, oh, I'll have to get rid of Bardas, because I don't want Bardas to be my heir now. So he tells Basil the Macedonian, hey, why don't you go kill Bardas? <laughs> Basil says, okay. So he does it. So we, we lose Bardas then. <laughs> No more Bardas in 866. Uh, and for the most part, though, the, the court of Michael III, uh, aside from these little complications, uh, life went on as normal, right? Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. It's all the same, you know. Uh, wild, rollicking fun, parties every night. Uh, in fact, this, this caused such a drain on the imperial treasury of the Byzantine Empire. Remember, this is the treasury that had been built up by Nicephorus I at the beginning of the 9th century, to the point where they had millions of gold numismata lying around and didn't know what to do with them. Now, in, in the reign of Michael III, his, his spending has gotten so out of control, just spending on his own personal amusements, uh, that he was forced to take every golden ornament that he could find in the various imperial palaces and melt them down to mint coins with them. All right, th things are getting a little bit dicey. We're down into the six figures in terms of number of nomismata in the treasury. Now, that, it still sounds like a lot, if you keep in mind. A nomismata is like 200 bucks. So if there's 100,000 nomismata, that's still a, a decent amount of money, but not a decent amount of money for running an empire with. Right? And especially if it's all going out the window to pay for your partying and to pay for gifts to your various companions, and etc. So uh, the, the wild craziness of the court here sort of continues. And uh, in the meantime, if you think, who's really in a dicey situation here? Bardos is dead. The child to be born, which, who's due sometime in 867, uh, this child is going to be Michael III's heir. Right? So who's really in a dangerous position? Basil the Macedonian, right? Yeah, somebody, Basil the Macedonian is in a really dangerous position as, as the official father of this child. Uh, so, of course, what happens? In the meantime, Photius gets very, very frustrated himself in 867. Things start to go downhill in 867. First of all, Boris, the, the Bulgar Khan, he made one of his first... Um, <laughs> conversions in 867, where he decided to convert from Byzantine to Frankish Christianity. And part of this just has to do with Boris's desire for, for cultural and political independence, right? He initially received Byzantine missionaries. In 867, he decides to kick them out and accept Frankish missionaries. That's a blow to Photius's prestige and to Photius's power and influence. What's more to the point, though, is that by 867, it was clear that Cyril and Methodius were in correspondence with the papacy, and that they were siding with the papacy in the, the pope's dispute with Photius over Photius's legitimacy. So Photius is saying, wow, I had you know, all of these nets in my control. I had missionaries in Moravia, Pannonia, and Bulgaria that I was in control of. Now I've lost all of it very suddenly. It all slips out of my hands. So Photius in, in 867 says, ah, oh, what do I do? Well, let's call a council, and we'll draw a line in the sand. Remember, it's one thing to have different religious practices, it's another thing to condemn other people's religious practices as heretical. Okay. For example, with iconoclasm. It's one thing to not have icons in your church. That's not heretical. Right? Cistercians didn't have icons in their churches. If you go to a Cistercian abbey, go to Noirlac, and you'll see what I'm talking about. There's, there's no religious art. And, and, you know, the absence of icons is not strictly heretical. But if you say that the veneration of icons is heretical, now you're a heretic. Right? And that was why the stakes had been raised so high in the, the Byzantine debate over iconoclasm. Similarly here, Photius raises the stakes in his debate with the West. It's one thing for Photius to have a dispute with the Pope over whether he's the legit patriarch or not. That's, that's one thing. That's a, a merely canonical dispute. For, for, for Photius to say, no, I'm the legitimate patriarch and Ignatius is not, 
That's one thing. But for Photius to say, I'm the legitimate patriarch and Ignatius is not, because Ignatius was in communion with the papacy and the papacy is heretical, now you're ratcheting up the stakes very, very high. And that's precisely what Photius does in 867. He calls a council that condemns the Western Church on a whole variety of charges for being heretical. Some of them seem kind of silly. The Western Church is heretical because the priests don't have beards. The Western Church is heretical because the bishops wear rings. Uh, the Western Church is heretical because they fast on Saturdays. Right? Western Church is heretical because the priests are celibate. Right? Some of the charges are much, much more serious, though. Uh, the charges that, that would really become part of the Byzantine theological tradition are Photius's charges of heresy against the West on two counts. One of them is the use of unleavened bread in the liturgy. Remember, in the West, we use azymes, unleavened bread in the liturgy. Photius condemns the use of unleavened bread, what he calls azimatism. He condemns that as a Christian heresy. Furthermore, what was becoming increasingly common in the Western Church, especially in Carolingian lands in the 9th century, was the addition of the phrase to the creed uh, that denoted the fact that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as the Father. Right? The infamous or famous filioque. Right? The description of the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Son along with the Father. This had its origins in the anti-Aryan councils that were held in Visigothic Spain very early on, during the 6th century conversion of the Visigoths from Arianism to Catholicism. Uh, the, the use of that phrase in the creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as the Father, it had spread throughout Carolingian domains. It had become part of the Carolingian program of religious reform and uniformity, and that's how Photius knew about it. What Photius may or may not have realized is that the filioque, that phrase, it wasn't yet used in Rome. It hadn't yet caught on in Rome. In fact, it, it started to catch on in Rome partly in response to Photius, um, which is just an interesting little, little side effect of Photius' um, anger here. But he condemns the West for heresy right, on all of these counts. This marks um, a profound deepening of the split. It's one thing to have a schism with the West. It's another thing to say the whole Western Church and anyone who's in communion with the Western Church is heretical. In fact, Cyril and Methodius themselves, by implication, would fall under Photius's condemnation here at the 867 Council. Right? It's a very interesting event. But the, the final coup de grace for the reign of Michael III, this would be the event that would provoke Cyril and Methodius' summons to Rome. Now is this. Basically, Basil the Macedonian wised up, and he realized, you know what? First of all, I'm in a really dicey position. Michael III assassinated the last guy who stood between him and his natural son in the order of succession. Well, technically, I assassinated him. But anyway, uh, Basil saying, I assassinated him on the order of Michael III. Next thing I know, Michael III is going to order someone to assassinate me here. Right? He further realized that Michael III was really easy to assassinate himself because Michael III was drunk all the time. Uh, and so one day in 867, Basil the Macedonian just waited for Michael III to get completely sloshed and walked in and kill him. And he killed him and Michael III never even knew. It's kind of, it's kind of an anticlimactic ending. You just, uh, you go to sleep drunk and you wake up in hell. It's kind of lame, but, you know. Anyway, so <laughs> poor Michael III. It comes to a very, very sad end. Um, th this event in 867, it, the, the assassination of Michael III, it, it, it's an event that would have implications far beyond the religious history of the Slavs, and we'll talk about some of those later. But as far as our friend Cyril and Methodius are concerned, uh, the assassination of Michael III is very, very significant. Why? Because Basil the Macedonian then makes himself emperor. Okay? And one of the first things that he does is to depose Photius as patriarch and restore the exiled Ignatius. 
Photius was seen as too independent, too uppity, and too mouthy, and too closely tied to Michael III, right? too close of an ally to Michael III, too articulate, too dangerous, too smart. So Basil the Macedonian gets rid of him and sends him up the Bosporus to the Black Sea to hang out. And he restored the pious, devout, austere, half-literate Ignatius to the patriarchal throne. This presents an opportunity for the Eastern and Western churches to mend fences. And so in 869, a Byzantine church council was held, which anathematized Photius, apologized for the whole Photian episode, and restored communion with the Latin church. Now, it's after this 869 council, the poor anathematized Photius uses his tremendous learning. I mean, remember, even Photius's papal enemies in the 9th century referred to him as being a man of universal knowledge. Everybody recognizes Photius's learning is just far, far and away beyond what anyone can muster to compete with him. Photius is, he's the absolute Mike Tyson 1985, you know, just the, the best, and no one can compete with him at all. So he, he uses this tremendous learning to work his way back into favor uh, with Basil the Macedonian. And he does it in kind of a smart way. He, he comes up with uh, an artificial genealogy uh, for Basil the Macedonian, which, which proves to Basil the Macedonian's satisfaction uh, that he, Basil, far from being a Macedonian upstart, a, a mere drunken athlete who happened to be in the right place at the right time uh, to stage a coup d'etat and assassinate the previous emperor and take the Byzantine throne. No, far from that, Basil the Macedonian was a descendant of many lines of kings on both sides of his family. That he was a descendant of, of Armenian and Macedonian royalty going all the way back to Alexander the Great. And therefore that Basil the Macedonian had a clear title to rule the Byzantine Empire. Basil the Macedonian was very pleased with this. Uh, so Photius came to court, and initially he wasn't restored to his patriarchal position, but he was allowed to become a tutor at the Byzantine court. Photius went through the pretense of um, making up with Ignatius as well. Uh, he apologized to Ignatius, I'm sorry I deposed you. Uh, you know, why didn't I realize we could just be such good friends, etc. Uh, so in this period of good relations between the Byzantine church and the papacy, Photius, he's working his way back into the limelight. Now, in this period, relations between the Byzantine and the papacy uh, were not merely um, a desideratum. They were a matter of absolute practical survival because the Arabs at this point were attempting to conquer Italy. The Arabs who had already conquered Sicily had uh, established a foothold at Bari in the Italian peninsula. And it was um, a period in which Basil the Macedonian Pope Adrian, who had succeeded Nicholas I, and Louis II, who was son of Louis the German, who was son of Louis the Pious, uh, realized that the, the time had come for them to forge an alliance with one another. And I'm sorry, Louis II was the son of Lothair, who was the son of Louis the Pious. But anyway, you have a Frankish emperor, a Byzantine emperor, and Pope Adrian, uh, who decide to form a triple alliance against the Arabs. So all things are going well now in terms of relations between the Byzantine Empire, the Frankish Empire, and the papacy, right? And so it's in this period, then, that Methodius goes back to work among the Slavs. So what happened to Cyril, the younger brother? Well, poor Cyril. Uh, he didn't live very long after he answered the summons to Rome in 867. He, he, it appears to be the case he was in Rome for a while. Uh, he took a monastic habit while he was in Rome. And then he died. And at his funeral procession, Thousands and thousands of Romans lined the streets to commemorate the death of Cyril. Almost immediately, he was pro proclaimed a saint by the crowds. 
And that, that sort of instant canonization by the crowds, it, it was really the first time that St. Cyril was canonized in the Western Church. He was canonized by the crowds long before Leo XIII added him to the Latin calendar in the 19th century. Uh, so Methodius is sent back by himself then in 870 back to the lands of the Slavs. The problem is they can't send him back to Moravia. You can't send him back to Great Moravia. Why? Because Rostislav, the king of Great Moravia, had been overthrown by one of his relatives named Svatopluk. And uh, Svatopluk had done the, the extraordinarily discourteous thing of, of sending Rostislav to be tried by the Franks. And, uh, and Rostislav ended up dying in Frankish captivity in a rather ignominious way. So Svatopluk had accepted Frankish missionaries at this point and Frankish bishops. And the jurisdiction of the Archbishop of Salzburg had been extended to cover Great Moravia then, around 870. So where is Methodius sent? Methodius is sent by the papacy to Pannonia. Right? And it was in Pannonia where he found allies and where he was welcomed. And he continued his work of spreading the Slavonic liturgy among the Slavs. He was steadfastly supported by the papacy in this period. But the papacy had to kind of um, assist Methodius in dancing around the political uh, hopscotch board of that area. Right? The, the papacy certainly wouldn't have wanted to send Methodius into a dicey situation in Frankish-controlled territory or in territory that was allied with the Franks. So Methodius is doing his work in the 870s in Pannonia at first. The death of his Pannonian, some of his important Pannonian allies in the 870s, though, uh, luckily coincided with Svatopluk's expulsion of the Frankish missionaries. And so Methodius was very providentially able to dance around in the 870s between Pannonia and Great Moravia. Uh, in 879, momentous events took place in the Byzantine church that would have an impact on Methodius's mission, which was that Photius uh, was, <laughs> interestingly enough, reappointed Archbishop of Constantinople because Ignatius, the guy that he had usurped the patriarchal throne from, finally died. And when Ignatius died, the, the Emperor Basil the Macedonian wrote to the popes, and he, he just said, look, you know, it's Pope Adrian and his successor, John VIII, uh, you know, th there's really only one guy that everybody wants to be Patriarch of Constantinople, and that's the learned, witty, gentleman, Photius. So can we reappoint him Patriarch of Constantinople? So uh, Pope John VIII had written back in 879, and he said, all right, Photius can be reappointed Patriarch of Constantinople on a couple of conditions. Number one, he has to apologize for usurping the patriarchal throne in the first place. Number two, he has to apologize for saying that the Western Church is heretical. Photius got this message, and he then announced, the Pope agrees that I can become patriarch again. Hooray. <laughs> Photius actually took the precaution of deleting these two conditions from the Greek version of the proclamation as it was read in Hagia Sophia <laughs> in 879. Uh, and he was proclaimed again patriarch of Constantinople. And this begins an epoch in Photius's reign and in, in the history of the Byzantine church that was hotly debated for many decades. Scholars for a long time thought that this was the beginning of what they called the Second Photian Schism. Right, where, where Photius, because of his refusal to submit to Pope John VIII's conditions, uh, it was inferred that he would have been excommunicated again, that the Byzantine and Latin churches would have been separated from one another again for a period here. That was then traced down you know, to the, towards the end of the ninth century. Uh, the meticulous scholarship of Dvornik and Chadwick in the 20th century pretty much revealed that this isn't the case. There really is no second Photian schism. It appears to be the case that John VIII was bothered by Photius's behavior, 
But he chose not to renew the schism. He chose not to excommunicate Photius. Uh, so it's interesting. In this period, then, the Byzantine and Latin churches are finally, although uncomfortably, reunited. And Methodius's mission in Moravia continued. Now, when Methodius dies, and his death can be placed somewhere around 885 or so, it's then that the real impact of Cyril and Methodius on history becomes apparent. Because during the course of, of Methodius's life, Upwards of 3,000 students had been trained to write in the Glagolitic alphabet. They had been trained in the Slavonic liturgy, the Slavonic Bible, the Slavonic spiritual tradition that Cyril and Methodius had founded. And that spiritual tradition became the common religious idiom of virtually all Slavs, of the Moravians, of the Pannonians, of the Bulgars, and eventually of the Russians as well in the Kievan Rus. And so, from the 9th century on, all Slavs were bound together by their adherence to a Slavonic version of Byzantine Christianity. This bound them together in an orientation towards the Byzantine Church and towards the Patriarchate of Constantinople as well. It's interesting to note, though, in Cyril and Methodius' lifetime, that they took fidelity to the papacy to be a non-negotiable principle. Fidelity to the papacy is something that, in, to which they were faithful no matter what was going on in their own home church, no matter what was going on in their own home patriarchate, in their own home archbishopric of Constantinople. And I think that's why Pope John Paul II named them patrons of Europe, because they were seen as the exemplars of what a Byzantine Catholic is. A Byzantine Catholic is faithful to his spiritual tradition and faithful to the Pope of Rome as well. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. Okay, our questions. Questions, yes, Emily. Okay, so you said that the people in the Byzantine Empire and the Byzantine Church kept in contact and together with the papacy and whatnot, but just practically in ancient times, how did they do that? I mean, they did, but how did they do that? Did they write letters? Like, what happened? So the, the question for those of you who didn't hear it is... Um, how do people keep in contact in pre-modern times? When we talk about the Eastern and Western churches being in union with one another, in practical terms, what does that mean, given the limitations of ninth century technology? And uh, it is a really, really good question, uh, because sometimes it was ambiguous. You know, the, the story, the hilarious story I always like to tell is the, the story from the run-up to the First Crusade, when Alexius Komnenos was in correspondence with Pope Urban II, about raising an army of Western Knights to go on the First Crusade. And uh, at that point, Alexius Komnenos and Pope Urban II could not figure out whether there was a schism or not between the Byzantine and Latin churches. There was all kinds of correspondence back and forth. Um, is there a schism? I don't know. Is there a schism? I don't know. Uh, the Pope says, well, do you guys commemorate me in the liturgy? Alexius says, I don't know. Let me find out. Uh, he checks, and, the, and then he writes back, yeah, it turns out we actually don't. Does that mean there's a schism? I don't know. You know <laughs> nobody, nobody can really tell. Um, of, course, the, of course, commemoration of, uh, of the Pope's and the Byzantine liturgy had gone away in the time of Michael Serralarius in the middle of the 11th century. Uh, and, um, but then after the death of Serralarius, it wasn't clear what that meant. Does it mean that there's a, some kind of schism or, or what? It, it's, it's not at all clear until, until matters come to a head. If the Pope says, do this, or you're not the legitimate patriarch, and, and the guy says, no, screw you, that's when you have a clear schism. And uh, so I, I think the, the assumption in the ninth century is that the Pope is commemorated uh, on the diptychs in the, in the anaphora of the liturgy. 
of, of the Byzantine liturgy. Uh, and so when a pope died and a new pope was elected or appointed, uh, notification would come to Constantinople, they'd be aware of it, and you'd have a new papal name read from the diptychs. At various times, though, the, the names of the popes were not read from the diptychs, and uh, it, it could be for a variety of different reasons. It, it didn't necessarily imply a schism. Sometimes it was just that the that particular patriarch was mad at the Pope about something, and, and so that they would take his name out of the liturgy. And uh, so, but generally speaking, though, the the, the correspondence, the, the the epistolary correspondence uh, across the Mediterranean, it was much more active than what you might imagine. Uh, you might be thinking, ninth century, my gosh, you know, did, did anyone communicate with anyone outside of a you know a thirty foot radius? And uh, the the answer is, is really really surprising. There was very very active correspondence not only from one end of the Mediterranean to another and, and from Western Europe uh, into the Byzantine world, uh, but even, of course, between the Christian and Islamic worlds, between the Christian world and, and the world of, of the Khazars, for example, and, uh, and between the Islamic world and the Chinese. You know, the, the, it was a time of, of wide correspondence, um, and, and it was correspondence that was so wide, it, it really kind of it blows one away when we're used to relying on modern technology to communicate. In the, in the age long before there was anything that we would call technology, uh, except like ships, like you know, flotation, water displacement, like you know, really serious kind of technology. Uh, I mean, uh, aside from very small ships, uh, communication was um, was difficult. But but it's it's remarkable the lengths to which people would go to communicate in long distances. When Photius was exiled on the Black Sea, for example, in that period of his life, uh, Photius wrote indefatigably to his allies and, and to his friends to try to marshal a party in support of, of his return to the patriarchal throne. So it's, that would be, you know, I think it would surprise us the extent to which people did correspond by letter. So how did the, uh, the Slavs in Pannonia and Moravia, and I guess modern day Poland, mm -hmm. how did they end up in the Latin church? That's a very good question. Um, the, the Slavs in Poland have a totally different history, which is, which is how they ended up in the Latin church, basically. Uh, what you have is the importation of Latin Christianity into the eastern reaches of the Carolingian Empire. Okay, and that, that's where Poles would have first come into contact with it. Uh, and then the, the sort of um, East Frankish hold, or what, what we would call the German hold over you know, modern-day Poland, geographically speaking. Uh, it was confirmed in the Middle Ages by the success of the Teutonic Knights and uh, by the success of, of Saxon kings in expanding their power in the, that region of modern-day Poland. So those, those Slavs, that is to say Poles, have kind of a Latin history going back, uh, going back to, in, in some sense, Carolingian times. But it, it was, it's a religious history that was confirmed and strengthened by the era of the Crusades by the Teutonic Knights, um, by Saxony, and, and then Prussia, and things like that. Uh, the, the history, as far as Moravia and Bohemia is concerned, is a little bit more complicated, um, because that, er that area becomes sort of a, a membrane that separates Latin Slavs from Byzantine Slavs. Uh, many Bohemian and Moravian Slavs to this day are, are Byzantine in their heritage. Of course, the, the Ruthenians are Byzantine. Yeah, I know they don't like the term Ruthenian, but, uh, but for, for lack of a better term, you're talking about Byzantines who come from that region of what would have been part of Great Moravia and Pannonia. Uh, of course, the um, Illyricum is another region where you have a membrane going down through the Balkan Peninsula. So Croats end up on one side of it and Serbs end up on the other side of it. Uh, and, and it's because you're, you're talking about an area that was a crossroads between Latin and Greek influences. And, and it was an area that was, that was settled by Slavs. And, uh, and so when you put the liturgy in, into Slavonic instead of into Latin or Greek, 
you're going to win. And I think that that's why the, the strategy of Cyril and Methodius is more successful uh, in the aggregate than the strategy of Frankish missionaries. But in areas where the Franks or Venetians or other Latin-oriented powers had greater control, like the Dalmatian coast, if you ever want to, like, why, why is the Dalmatian coast Latin uh, in its liturgical tradition? And, and the only way to distinguish a Croat from a Serb, ultimately, is by their liturgical tradition. Right? And so, so why is the Dalmatian coast part of Croatia? It has to do with the success of the Venetians in the Middle Ages in, in maintaining control of that area and having Latin liturgies and things like that. Um, so there, there are political uh, kind of uh, political eccentricities to how things shake out in the Middle Ages, and those ultimately determine which liturgical tradition ends up where. Uh, I think the genius of Cyril and Methodius is that they didn't have to sell a Greek liturgy to the Slavs, uh, and, and that's why they were, they were wildly successful. Um, you've talked a lot about uh, the political reasons and motivations for a uh, split between East and West. Mm -hmm. Um, could you comment a little bit on maybe some of the cultural and even linguistic drivers and even the things like simple as linguistic misunderstandings um, that may have led to separation? That's a really good question. I, I'm, I don't believe that linguistic, under, that linguistic misunderstandings were a major issue as far as the, the development of the split in the church is concerned. Um, the, the development of the schism between the Eastern and Western churches, it, it's a very long and complicated thing. And I, I, the one book that I would recommend on that subject is Henry Chadwick. Uh, Henry Chadwick takes kind of a comprehensive view of that. It's called, uh, I, the subtitle is The Making of a Rift in the Church. I think I forget what the actual title is, but that's the subtitle. Anyway, so, but if you look up Chadwick's book, that would be kind of the, the authority authoritative tome on that subject. Uh, I, I think for, um, there would be a few sort of myths that have to be dispelled about the reasons for the split between East and West. Myth number one is that the split between East and West happened in 1054. Okay, that, that's utter nonsense. The events of 1054 had little effect outside the immediate era in which they occurred. Uh, the, the other myth is that the Fourth Crusade was responsible for the split between the Eastern and Western churches. And, and once again, that's, that's utter nonsense, and it's not borne out by the facts. Uh, insofar as we can assign reasons for the permanence of the split between Eastern and Western churches, I'd say that there are two that have to be distinguished from one another. On the one hand, you have the creation of an anti-Latin theological tradition, first in the era of the Quintessext Council, and then it was resurrected and elaborated and made much more intellectually robust by Photius. Right? And so then, in later centuries, whenever Byzantine, a, a particular Byzantine cleric found it convenient to condemn the West as heretical, they had a whole tradition that they could reach into and grab. Okay. And, and so that, that anti-Latin tradition, although it wasn't the guiding ideology of the Byzantine church you know, on a continuous basis from that point on, but it could be resurrected when convenient. Okay, so, the, so there's that. Then the other thing, the, the ultimate thing that sort of dooms a hope of, um, really, uh, it dooms basically the, the idea that the Eastern, Eastern and Western churches would be united uh, without problems, is the Turkish conquest of Constantinople. Because when the Turks conquer Constantinople in 1453, they place um, the, the most radical members of the anti-Latin faction in charge of the Byzantine church. Right? And remember, the, the Ottoman Turks had a way of governing the different communities in the Ottoman Empire as what they called millets. Uh, and so for the, the millet of, of Greek Christians, uh, they basically w literally went into monasteries to recruit uh, the most vociferous anti-Latin monks that they could find and make them patriarchs. Gennadius Scolarius being the first of a, a long line of anti-Latin patriarchs appointed by the Ottomans. Uh, so I'd say that there's the theological tradition developed by the Quintessex Council and then by Photius, 
And then you have um, kind of a faction in the Byzantine church that, that kept that tradition alive, although it wasn't always a majority tradition. But then when the Turks conquer Constantinople, they take people who are adherents of that tradition and put them in charge of the Byzantine church. And from that point on, it's doomed. You know, remember, in 1453, at the time of the Turkish conquest, the, the Byzantine patriarch was actually in union with the West, uh, as were the last two Byzantine emperors were also in union with the West. Uh, so it, it's, it's really 1453, I think, where you get the decisive split. The rivalry between Frankish and Byzantine missionaries seems awfully uncharitable. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering if this happened to bother anybody at the time. That's a good question. Uh, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I, I think uh, <laughs> uh, as far as Christian charity was concerned, um, yeah, I, I think charity is rooted, first of all, in fidelity to the truth. And this is why oftentimes um, Christians can have disputes with one another that seem at first blush to be uncharitable. But if you talk to the participants, they say, no, I'm, I'm being charitable because I'm being truthful here. And uh, so I think what you have is, is just an unfortunate situation there where people's jurisdictional claims and rights overlap. And there's not a clear way of settling things except by appeal to papal authority. But then even the judgment of the popes um, could kind of change over time. So during Methodius's lifetime, the judgment of the popes was clearly in his favor. Right. Even the popes, though, were limited by political circumstances in that region. Uh, and that was, to a certain extent, where, where the uncharity came from. Uh, now, after Methodius's death, later in the ninth century, popes tended to favor Frankish bishops, and they tended to favor the claims of uh, the archbishops of, of Salzburg and Passau to govern uh, Pannonia and Moravia, uh, as far as ecclesiastical jurisdiction is concerned. And a lot of that, though, it had to do with the circumstances in which the papacy found itself in that era. For the papacy to ally itself with the Frankish emperors in the 10th and 11th centuries, it was a way of freeing the papacy from the control of Roman families. Uh, and so, to a certain extent, the, the reform of the papacy and the purification of the papacy and the strengthening of papal authority rested on good relations with the Frankish emperors because the Frankish emperors were a counterweight to the, the Roman family factions, uh, who were the ones who had made the papacy so corrupt in the 10th century. Uh, and so I, I think you see in later centuries greater willingness to be prejudiced in favor of, of Frankish interests there, uh, just because there were so much bigger things at stake. And there wasn't a great figure like Methodius necessarily in the 10th or 11th century that they could look to. Besides the linguistic differences of the Slavonic and Byzantine liturgies and spiritualities, how else were they different from each other? That's a very good question. Um, when Cyril and Methodius first started using the Glagolitic alphabet to create liturgical and religious texts in Slavonic, uh, they actually seemed to have been borrowing from a, a sort of fusion of Latin and Greek liturgical traditions. Uh, they use terms in Slavonic, in, in original Glagolitic liturgical fragments, there are terms like mass and preface and, and things that are taken from the Latin liturgy and not from the Byzantine liturgy. Um, so it's almost like they were trying to create a syncretic Christian liturgy that, that drew from, from their own tradition, which would have been Byzantine, and from the traditions of the papacy and the Carolingian Empire, and just make something new that was distinctly Slavonic. Um, after Methodius's death, the Glagolitic alphabet fell out of use. It was reformed, and it became what we call Cyrillic. Now, when, when, they, uh, you know, when Methodius' students and their students kind of switched from Glagolitic to Cyrillic, 
th there's a kind of a symbolism in how the alphabet changes, because the glagolitic alphabet was much more like the Latin alphabet, and, and it was a mixture of Latin and Greek alphabetic uh, symbols. The Cyrillic alphabet is much more Greek-looking, right? It, it doesn't really look like the Latin alphabet at all, for the most part. And that was symbolic, I think, of, of the way in which Methodius's successors were far more closely tied with the Byzantine church than they were with the Latin West. And so eventually what you have is the, the simple adoption of a, a Slavonic liturgy that's basically Byzantine there. And, uh, and to a certain extent, the, that, that reality, the, the alignment of, the, of Slavonic Christianity with Byzantine Christianity, it was a product not just of Cyril and Methodius's missionary work and, and stuff that happened in their lifetime. It was the product of the political recovery of the Byzantine Empire, which continued in, in a dramatic way in the 10th and 11th centuries. And, and this is why I think Basil the Macedonian's assassination of Michael III becomes so politically important. Basil the Macedonian founds a dynasty. He, he founds what we call the Macedonian dynasty, which then lasts from 867 all the way down to 1025. And uh, the, under the Macedonian emperors, and under you know, some competent generals um, like Nicephorus II and John Samiskis, who served as co-emperors, say, in the, in the youth of Basil II, later in the 10th century, you have the, the spectacular territorial gains and political and fiscal recovery by the Byzantine Empire. And so the, the Byzantine Empire in the 9th century was weaker than all its neighbors. It was weaker than the Abbasid Caliphate. It was weaker than the Frankish Empire. The Byzantine Empire in 1025 was far, far stronger than any, uh, any of its neighbors. Neither the Abbasid Caliphate nor the Frankish Empire survived in a, in a recognizable form by 1025, as the, the Seljuk Turks had taken over the Abbasid lands. And, of course, the Frankish Empire had been through all sorts of transformations by 1025. So. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.